Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com with the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to reu hotels and resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Hi, hello, and welcome to the official Euripides fan club, better known as Let's Talk About Miss Baby. I am your host, Liv, she who, well, loves Euripides. Now you might be thinking, but Liv, isn't this episode covering a play by Aristophanes? (laughs) And yes, you would be right. This is indeed an episode dedicated to introducing the Aristophanes play called either the Thesmophoria Zeusai or 
the more anglicized title of The Women at the Thesmophoria or The Women at the Festival. It's just that while this play features what is basically just Euripides' slander, and you know I will not be putting up with that. So this is a play I've heard about in various levels of detail for all the years that I've been doing this podcast, specifically since I've come to obsess over Euripides. The thing I've often heard and what makes me both intrigued and annoyed by this play, without even having read it, is that the basis for some people's views on Euripides and his feelings towards women specifically, the treatment of women, this play influences that in a really bizarre way. If someone theorizes, of all the playwrights, that it's perhaps Euripides who best aligns with modern ideas of feminism, in whatever way that he can, someone will inevitably bring up this play as a reason why that isn't true. It has been done to me multiple times. Like, this play is evidence that Euripides is bad towards women. And at its simplest... This play is the story of women of Athens being angry at Euripides for how he portrays their gender. (sighs) Of course, I see it as explicit and egregious Euripides' slander. He is Euripides, for God's sakes. He is fascinated by women, and that is why he's brilliant. But we will get there. In my need to defend my beloved tragedian, I have jumped ahead of myself. Before we even get into the thesmophoria of it all, I just want to recognize that um, while my episode numbering system is absolutely wild at this point, totally bizarre, this is kind of my 200th episode. Even though I have like over 450 episodes available uh, because conversations and the old mini myths and bonuses and whatever other weird things that I've put in my feed over the years, like they didn't get numbers. So even though this is entirely arbitrary... Here we are celebrating my 200th episode with this wild Athenian comedy that takes direct aim at my favorite ancient man. And let's be honest, half of this series will just be a defense of Euripides. Happy 200th. This is episode 200, No Boys Allowed, celebrating Demeter and Persephone, Aristophanes' Women of the Thesmophoria. Ah, Aristophanes. I've covered two of his plays in the past, Lysistrata, uh, the famous sex strike, and the frogs, the famous singing frogs of the underworld. Coax, coax. <sighs> yes, Aristophanes contains multitudes. Today we are going to talk about Aristophanes, the Athenian old comedy, which he was a part of and the only surviving source for. But we're also going to talk about the very real festival at the center of this play, the Thesmophoria. It is far more interesting than an ancient man who apparently disliked or was generally obsessed with my beloved Euripides. So let's start with that Thesmophoria. The Thesmophoria was this festival that took place in ancient Greece. It seems to have been pretty widely celebrated, but unsurprisingly, most of our evidence for it comes from Athens. So while we know that it was this widespread and incredibly ancient festival that spanned many regions of the ancient Greek world, the exact details and evidence that we have often comes from a later period and Athens specifically. 
In Athens, the Thesmophoria lasted three days, and it was dedicated to the nature and fertility goddesses, the mother-daughter duo, Demeter and Persephone. It was meant to inspire fertility for the following season, fertility both in nature and in humans. The Thesmophoria took place during the autumn, around like October or November, and it represented Persephone's return from the underworld. She was now home with her mother, all was well again, and thus it was time to plant the crops and to start on the next year's growth. And this is all well and good, but the most interesting and important thing about the Thesmophoria festival was that it was attended only by women. No boys allowed. Or rather, at least in Athens, it was citizen wives. That is, women who were married to Athenian citizens and thus were the closest thing Athenian women got to, like, official citizens. It's possible that other women were allowed to attend, and even more likely that beyond Athens, it was open to more women broadly. But because Athens, Athenian women were particularly limited comparatively, this is what we know. Still, all of these caveats aside, what remains fun and cool and certainly would have been refreshing for these women of the time, it was very clear that no boys were allowed. Men were strictly forbidden from attending any part of the Thesmophoria. And isn't that just lovely? (laughs) What it also means is that while we do know a good deal about what happened during the actual Thesmophoria festival, what happens in the play that we're going to get into isn't necessarily what actually happened at the festival because well Aristophanes was not allowed to attend the Thesmophoria so he didn't actually know what they did and he based his play on assumptions on on guesses and he threw in a touch of Bacchic festivities like think maenads <laughs> and that's why I want to tell you about the real Thesmophoria first because what we're going to see in the play wasn't it it's comedy after all He played with a lot of different things in order to create a comedic play about these women attending a women's only festival. Now, the word thesmophoria comes from one of Demeter's epithets, her titles, thesmophoros, which means lawgiver. Frankly, I'm sharing that almost entirely just because it's cool. Like, I mean, it's good extra fun info, I guess. But like, Demeter is cool. Her relationship with Persephone is great and lovely, and I will die on this hill. Demeter and her daughter have this whole festival dedicated to them. Of course, it was just like one of the many, many things and festivals even that those two had dedicated to them. But this one was the one that was exclusive to women. And particularly when it comes to these Athenian women, it was one of the few times that they were actually permitted to go out and be like publicly social. (laughs) What we know of Athenian women, and by that I do just mean these citizen wives, was that their lives were pretty limited. They were pretty confined to the domestic sphere. And while I'm sure they would get together with other women of their status and they would socialize, I'm sure. But they weren't just allowed to go out and do what they wanted. But once a year, for three straight days, these women were allowed to go out and get together, do a bunch of ritual shit that the men were absolutely not allowed in on. It's badass. And one of the things that they were supposed to have participated in during this festival was ritual obscenity. (laughs) Yeah, basically they were supposed to like ritually tell like dirty jokes and things like that. It was specific and an important part of the festival. I like to think they would have enjoyed my podcast, actually. Sometimes I can be ritually obscene too, ladies. (laughs) 
Still, as much as I wanted to bring up that ritual obscenity as early as possible, it took place later in the festival. We actually know quite a bit about how the event likely went and what took place over those three days. So my source here is Sarah B. Pomeroy, and she calls these details plausible. So we're going with them. As much as this episode is meant to introduce this Aristophanes play, I just want to give you a good idea about what the actual Thesmophoria looked like, because it's incredibly cool that this festival existed, that we know so much about, and that there were no dudes there. And like I said, Aristophanes' version of it is really specific for his purposes, and since he wasn't allowed to attend the festivities, he combined a lot of other things into the details. And he broadly wrote the play to seemingly, I don't know, settle a score with Euripides or just make fun of him. Who knows? Not to mention that Aristophanes typically wrote political comedies whose purpose was not to accurately portray how this women's only festival would have taken place. So we will get to Aristophanes, but we were starting with this, the very real women at the Thesmophoria. So day one of the Thesmophoria was called Kathados and Anodos, which meant, respectively, going down and rising up. The first day included descending into caves to retrieve well, the bodies of piglets that had been sacrificed during an earlier festival to the two goddesses, and then they'd been left there to decompose? It's lovely. I know. Still, they retrieved these remains, and then they mixed them with seed grains, and they placed them on altars. The second day of the festival, meanwhile, was called Nesteia, which means fasting. On that day, the women, well, they fasted. Simple enough. But it was meant to mirror Demeter's time searching for Persephone. Those days when she had no idea where her daughter was and descended into that depression. And on the third day of the Thesmophoria, called the Caliganea, which means fair birth, the remains of the piglets mixed with the seeds were sown into the fields. And during the entirety of the festival, the women abstained from sex and anything of the sort, at least this, and this is entirely my own brain, like the sources would tell us that, but it really means that they abstained with sex with their husbands and men broadly. I'm not convinced that the ancient Greeks thought much about sexual activities between women. You know, they didn't really consider it a a thing. In any case, that's what we're told about these practices. And then, and this is directly from Pomeroy, the book is listed in the episode's description. She says, quote, men were involved only to the extent that If they were wealthy, they were compelled to bear the expense of the festival as a liturgy or tax on behalf of their wives. I love that for them. And gods, one day I just need to do an entire episode based on this Pomeroy book. It's called Goddesses, Whores, Wives, and Slaves. And it is fascinating. Okay, now that we've talked about the real and true Thesmophoria Festival, oh, how incredibly cool. Let's now take a look at the playwright who's brought us this play that features it, Aristophanes. Like I said, I've shared a couple of his plays with all of you before, the Lysistrata and the Frogs, but if you know anything about me, it's that I am considerably more detailed at researching now and kind of obsessed with bringing you all as much extra context as possible So this time, we're going to look a bit deeper into what exactly he was doing at the time. 
Because, well, if he is going to slander my beloved Euripides, as I know he is about to, we are going to have to understand him just a little bit more. The number one thing to keep in mind when looking at Aristophanes is that he's a comic playwright. I typically talk to you all about the beloved tragedians. My favorite ancient man, Euripides, along with those other two who are fine, I guess, Aeschylus and Sophocles. They're what remains of the tragedians of classical Greece, and Aristophanes wrote at a similar time period to them, at least similar to Sophocles and Euripides. Aeschylus was a bit earlier than all of them, so he was long gone. But Aristophanes was also younger than both of the others, like seemingly 30 to 50 years younger, depending on who. Um, So he's kind of this like comedic upstart, crossing paths with icons of tragedy. And in the case of Euripides, uh, writing a handful of plays featuring him as a character. One that isn't always entirely likable. Now, that said, there are also theories about them being good friends, which I will mention again later. Just like comedies of today, he often wrote satire and political comedy, commenting on the world around him and the politics of the time in Athens. And like I just mentioned, he also featured real people in his plays. Sometimes people like Euripides, but often politicians too. Unlike the tragedians, he didn't base his comedies in myth. They are, for the most part, wholly invented and very, very tied to the time in which he was writing and the people who were important around him. There's so much to say about Aristophanes and his writing, but I think that that is enough for today, not least because I really just need to dive into this play for my own sanity. I just need one source. Please and thank you. So let's get into it. This classical Greek comedy about women heading down to the women's only festival. A play which, yes, would have been performed entirely by men dressed as women. And not to worry, there's also a character who will be a man playing a man dressed as a woman. Just to keep us all on our toes when it comes to ancient gender expression. Though it's not entirely certain which festival the play was first performed at, the Thesmophoria Zeusai seems to have been produced in the year 411, which is, I think, very appropriately, also the same year that one of Aristophanes' most famous plays, The One and Only Lysistrata, was performed for the first time. Remember, I've, I've covered the Lysistrata on the podcast, but it's the play that is oh so famously about the women of Greece going on a sex strike in an attempt to end the Peloponnesian War. So it was a year for bizarre comedic examinations of women who weren't actually allowed to watch the plays and thus was really about men watching women or men watching men pretend to be women. There's lots going on here. And so this play, it opens with Euripides and his elderly father-in-law, Menesilicus, wandering the streets of Athens in the cool weather. Euripides is searching for a particular house, and Menesilicus is along for the ride, although he isn't happy about it. He's old and sore and complaining quite loudly about how he's being dragged around by Euripides. What are you looking for, anyway? He asks his son-in-law. Euripides doesn't answer until he's found what he's looking for. A friend's house. Another tragedian by the name of Agathon. Agathon, you see, was also a very real tragedian, just like Euripides. He was big, too. He was an important one. But you all don't know his name because none of his work survives. (sighs) How sad is that? Though people study what little we know of him, he's remembered mostly by being a a feature in the Thesmophoria Zeusai, and in Plato. But there's another important thing to know about Agathon. Agathon was famous for being pretty damn queer. At least, like, that's how we would understand him now. 
He was either queer generally or very gay specifically. It both depends on who you believe and how you want to interpret these things in their ancient contexts when, like, explicitly sexual preferences weren't seen as the same way they are now. But regardless, he was very famous for being effeminate and for quite famously having a male lover. Honestly, he sounds, like, really fun, and I'm sad we don't have any of his works. (laughs) I think they would be really entertaining and tragic, but, you know. The point here, though, is to give you an idea of who Agathon wasn't. He wasn't just a random invented character, but a very real and very talented person who has mostly been lost to time. He's a great example of all the people's works that we don't have now. The people we know so little about, but were very important and influential in their time. Still, here, he's just a character in Aristophanes, just like Euripides is just a character in Aristophanes. And Euripides has been dragging his elderly father-in-law around town in search of this friend, Agathon's house. Nothing is simple in Aristophanes, though, so when Euripides does finally find his friend's house, he and his father-in-law have quite the back and forth about what that actually means. Tell me what you're looking for, Menesilicus tells Euripides. Why tell you when you can see it for yourself? Euripides replies, since he has indeed found the house. And this, well, this confuses Menesilicus pretty thoroughly, made worse by Euripides playing semantics. There's a lot of back and forth about the nature of seeing and the nature of hearing, and it is all deeply unnecessary, but this is a comedy, and it is indeed comedic, if incredibly difficult for me to convey to you all here. It devolves into Euripides trying to explain the very real differences between seeing and hearing and how they're different and why why they're different, including, quote, You see, ether up there, ether, well, back in the beginning of time, he got separated from Earth, you see? And, and straightway, all these little beasties began living inside of him, mortals and birds and flies and such like. So he first thought up this thing we call I, built in the, sh- in the shape of a disc like that of the sun, see? Made it so that all the beasties could see. But for hearing, you see, he thought up something different. For hearing, he built something in the shape of a funnel, which we call an ear, right? <laughs> I'm imagining this is Aristophanes making a comment on Euripides' writing style, perhaps that he's over the top or convoluted, a bit excessive in his explanations, maybe, because this is indeed excessive, but also quite a nice way of looking into how one might imagine seeing and hearing in the ancient world? Maybe? (laughs) In any event, this does please Menesilicus, and he comes away very glad that he's learned something new. Quote, The stuff one learns when he walks with wise men. To which Euripides, in all of his glory, replies, quote, Stick around, old man, and you'll learn much more. After this, Menesilicus is, is even more tired than before, but Euripides drags him up to the door they'd initially stopped at, before all the lessons on seeing and hearing that seemed wildly unnecessary. See this door, he asks, which, yes, Menesilicus tells him, obviously, I see this door, it is right in front of me. This is the house of a great poet, Euripides explains, a great and beautiful poet, for Agathon being a pretty hot dude is absolutely vital to this play. He is a sexy guy. Everyone agrees. But, Euripides adds, 
He's also done great work with tragic choruses, and he's won first prize for his work. His name, he tells Menasilicus, is Agathon. But, well, Menasilicus has never heard of Agathon. Quote, Agathon, eh? Which Agathon is that, then? Oh, you mean that tall chap with the darkish complexion? No, no, Euripides tells him. That is a different guy. You've never heard of Agathon? Big beard? Menasilicus offers. No, that's not him either, Euripides says. You've really never seen him? No, Menasilicus confirms. Not as far as he knows. To which Euripides announces, quote, Yeah, right. I'll bet you fucked him, though. Without knowing who he was, I mean. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com.
With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ibera Star Hotels and Resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. I bet you fucked him without knowing who he was. <laughs> and thus we are introduced to Aristophanes' Agathon, a beautiful and slutty man. And I say that with all the reverence in the world. But we'll have no further talk of who's fucked who, at least for the moment. Because one of Agathon's enslaved people has left his house holding a brazier and some myrtle. Euripides takes note that this must mean that they're about to make a prayer for Agathon, probably to the muses, to help with his poetry. And that's exactly what happens. The slave performs a ritual and calls for silence, basically tells everyone around to shut the hell up, because the muses are there, inside, helping Agathon construct some odes. Menesilicus, meanwhile, just calls bullshit. Loudly. And he continues to call bullshit. Louder and louder, while the enslaved person continues to call for silence for his Agathon, master of beautiful poetry. And then Menesilicus yells for him to, quote, get fucked. And the slave looks around, trying to find out who it could be who would yell such crass things. Menesilicus looks at him innocently, saying, quote, that was the windless ether. Now, as much as I would like to continue detailing all the ways Menesilicus taunts Agathon's enslaved person with some truly incredible language, we need to get deeper into this play. But it does continue, this taunting. And at one point, the old man does wave around an enormous phallus, a common prop in Aristophanes' plays, because big fake dicks are always funny. Let's be honest. And he does at one point say he'd, quote, Love to grab a hold of you and your wonderful poet, spin both your gates around, and ram this funneling big cock of mine right up them. <laughs> so yes, uh, this play about women attending a women's only festival is deeply obsessed with dick jokes right from the beginning. Because women are not, this is an ancient Athenian tragedy, meant to be watched by men, performed by men, and written by a man. Dicks everywhere. And... After Menesilicus has thoroughly disturbed Agathon's enslaved person, Euripides finally asks him to go get his friend, to bring Agathon outside so they can speak. He's told that he just has to wait. Agathon is on his way out anyway. He needs to write in the sunlight, so he'll be, he'll be out soon. Which leaves Euripides and Menesilicus outside, alone, just waiting. And Euripides is not patient. He's got a lot on his mind. You see, he tells Menesilicus, after being pressed, there's a very, very bad thing set to happen today. A judgment is to be made. Quote, to kill or not to kill Euripides. What are you talking about? Menesilicus asks. There is no court in session today, no cases to be judged. That's because, quote, it's the holy day of the Thesmophoria, fasting day, mid-festival, women's day. 
That's exactly why I'm set to be judged, Euripides announces with a panic. And that's exactly why he's sure that the judgment is going to be... Kill Euripides. He adds in explanation, quote, You see, mate, there's a plot schemed up against me by the women, and today the two priestesses of the festival are going to gather together an assembly at the Temple of Demeter and bring down this judgment about my life or my death. Dun-dun-dun. And this, dear listeners, is when the Euripides slander begins. Why would they want you dead? Menesilicus asks, asking the question we all certainly have. Why would a bunch of women want Euripides dead? I certainly wouldn't. And while Euripides kind of shrugs, like, I don't know, but he kind of does. He elaborates, explaining that, well, he writes tragedies about them, about women. And, well, he says bad things about them in those tragedies. Ah, Menesilica says. Yes, yes. Well, that's certainly something that you would do. Quote, By Poseidon, you thoroughly deserve all the suffering you get for that. And I mean, obviously this is going to come up again and again when we get deeper into this aspect of the play, but I just take such issue with the idea that Euripides treated women badly. I mean, he treated them realistically. I know it's Aristophanes and he's just writing a plot, but gods, I would die on the hill that Euripides is the kindest to women of all the three tragedians. Even if it's just because he makes them real and complex. He's interested in them as characters, as people. Not to say the others don't, but he does it most often and I love him for it. But we must continue moving through this egregious slander of my favorite ancient human. So, Menesilicus asks, how are you going to get out of this one? Well, that's why we're here, Euripides explains. I'm going to ask Agathon to infiltrate the festival on my behalf. Ask him to go there and say whatever needs to be said to convince these women not to kill me. Menesilicus uh, raises a good question here. Quote, just like that? Openly? As a man? Among all them women? Or will he go in there covertly? Indeed, Euripides has thought of this too, because he says, quite simply that he'll have Agathon go in disguised as a woman. And before they can dive into what exactly that would mean or why Agathon would be inclined to help Euripides in that way, they are interrupted by, well, Agathon. He's brought out of his house, possibly on the Echeclema, which was a wheeled platform often used in Greek theatre. What he looked like, meanwhile, seems deeply up for debate. One of the translations I'm referring to seems to suggest that Maybe every man on stage had some kind of phallus, just, I don't know, like hanging off of them? It suggests that in the case of Menesilicus, it would have uh, been used to add to his taunts to Agathon's slave, and thus it would have been large. Whereas by contrast, Agathon's would have been small, because he's meant to be effeminate, kind of the opposite of the traditional ideal of Greek masculinity, except with all of that said, the traditional ideal of Greek masculinity was a tiny penis, so I... Who's to say? Either way, they are trying to at least somewhat insult Agathon. So I will remind you that while ancient Greece was pretty damn accepting when it came to generally homosexual relationships between two men, specifically, any kind of bigotry on that front came at the man who was the penetrated 
who was considered to be the more feminine, whereas the penetrator was considered very manly. So in the case of Agathon, he's very clearly meant to be the one who takes it. All of this is often based in relationships called pederasty, too, where an older man developed a relationship with a much younger man or even a boy. It was not great. Uh, in the case of Agathon, it seems like he's taking on that younger role, but he's certainly old enough because he's a playwright who's already won awards. In any case, Agathon seems to be depicted as like super feminine, even surrounding himself with women's objects alongside men's objects. In the case of one translation, it suggests that it's women's clothes, dresses, like wigs surrounding Agathon. Certainly there would have been something like that because it is used later in the plot. But I'll remind you that we we don't have ancient Greek stage directions. It is all based on what the translator decides they believe. Anyway, I promise this play is meant to be funny. And it is. I just want to explain everything to you all. <laughs> and well, the agathon of it all is made quite obvious when Euripides points out that he's arrived and Menesilicus suggests that he can't see the man because he, quote, Looks more like our famous whore, Kyrene, to me. Menesilicus is, um, well, he's very much a man, I would say, for lack of a better descriptor. He's the comic relief man, but he's uh, very much a bro. <laughs> Fortunately, we've got the lovely Agathon to offset this crude attempt at jokes, because here's Agathon coming out of his house and preparing to sing for us all. He takes up a song, imitating a chorus leader in their chorus, and he sings of the women who will go out to worship Demeter and Persephone on that day. Quote, O oh, virgins, for the sake of your free country, take up the sacred torch of Demeter and Persephone, the pair of goddesses of the underworld, and dance a thunderous dance. He goes on, performing as the women of this chorus, singing of their dance, how they will do it in honor of Apollo. They sing of Apollo and Poseidon, the two gods who built the towers and walls of Troy. They sing of the muses and of Artemis, how she loves to walk in dense forests. They sing of the twins' mother, Leto, who proudly has no partner. They sing and sing, imitating the chorus of a tragedy rather than a comedy. This is Agathon's song, after all, even if he was written by Aristophanes. But the Aristophanes of it all quickly rears its head once Agathon has finished singing his beautiful song. Menesilicus is there, listening with amused attention. And this, I think, is the perfect time to talk about translations of Aristophanes. There are many ways of translating this type of writer, one known for his crass jokes and generally crude language. I'm referring to two translations for this episode, and I've learned there aren't a ton of translations of this particular play. So they're pretty limited, but the one I've been quoting so far is by George Theodoridis, who translates a lot of free translations on poetry and translation. And I've also got one by Stephen Halliwell to refer to. Both are recent and both are vastly different, which is why I'm bringing them up. For instance, once Agathon has stopped his beautiful singing, Menesilicus has something to say. Halliwell has him announce, quote, what a gorgeous song of gods of the female domain. It reeked of feminine odors, lascivious kisses, and tongued endearments. Just listening to it made me feel a tickling sensation creeping right down under my bottom. <laughs> Meanwhile, Theodoridus' translation is, quote, By the holy god of fucking, by Genitalides herself, what a horny song, full of ardor, 
pussies and tongues right through the whole thing, all locked together, made my bumhole shiver with excitement. So you see, there are many ways to translate Aristophanes. I do appreciate the latter for its entertainment value, and thus I've been going to that translation generally. But it's fascinating the way these things can be done. I wish I knew the Greek so I could refer myself, but you can tell they're both ultimately saying the same thing, even if one is using much more colorful language. And we will hear much more of this wild translation next week. For now, where better to leave you than with Menesilicus's bumhole shivering with excitement? Oh, nerds, 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 this play is interesting, and so far, much more difficult than I expected. At least, just distill it into an entertaining narrative for you all. I just want to explain everything. I'll have to explain less as we go, but we'll get there. This is only the beginning. There's a lot of uh, very egregious Euripides slander still to come. For now, Aristophanes really needs to get over whatever he feels about my beloved tragedian. But I was speaking with a fellow nerd friend about this. We both agree that it seems like Aristophanes is either obsessed with Euripides, for better or worse, or the two were best friends and Aristophanes actually just dedicated entire plays to essentially like ribbing his friend. I do enjoy the latter idea. But either way, this play is often cited by people as so-called proof that Euripides didn't actually like women in his life, that he was even maybe like a misogynist or, or more of one than was the natural state of Athenian men. It's wild to me suggest that, though, given this is a comedic play. Like, it's satire. It, he's making up a version for this use. People have cited this to me when I talk about how much I love Euripides' use of women, and frankly, that is why I'm covering it on this show. I want you all to know where it comes from when people suggest that. It's from a comedy, a satire, one that features utterly utter absurdity in so many forms and probably should not be used as evidence for a very real man's life or opinions. Because Euripides' women characters are amazing, and I will forever remain convinced that there was something extra in him, that he was particularly interested in women as people, in creating characters that are real and flawed and complex, and that he found putting women in his plays far more interesting than men. Anyway, don't worry, I have two, two conversation episodes lined up that will dive into this play, the background of it, Aristophanes as a writer, and so much more, people who just know more than me because I am not very familiar with comedy. I just need to defend Euripides. (laughs) So we're going to get so much damn context. And next week, we're going to get to the really wild and entertaining bits of this play, because this is a play dedicated to women at a women's only space, played and written by men. And just imagine what all of that will mean for us, just based on that tiny bit I've shared with you today. As always, I'm finishing off with a five-star review from one of you lovely people. Thank you to everyone who leaves me five-star reviews. They honestly mean the world, and they help offset dudes who don't think I know what I'm talking about just because I have a uterus and don't talk like a robot. (laughs) That's common. This one comes from a user called Nurea from Saudi Arabia, of all places. 10 out of 10. Hi, I just started your podcast on Spotify and it's super fun and I think it's great that you've been active for close to six years now. I myself am a great fan of mythology and don't have any friends who are obsessed with it the way I am. So it's like having a friend who likes the same things as me. 
I love that. Thank you. I love being all of your nerdy mythology friend. And that one also made the great point of if you listen on Spotify, but you can give me a review on Apple, that would be amazing. Spotify lets you rate, but doesn't let you review. Giving me both is really helpful. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and gods. She handles so many podcast-related things, from running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by iHeartMedia. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron where you'll get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. I am Liv and oh, how I love this shit. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com.
With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Iberostar Hotels and Resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com.